so I made that winter roast as a joke. Uh, it took me an hour to make it. I'm gonna put it up and I put it on in the Facebook, and that sort of blew up. I think you know the, this is where the build fast, fail fast mentality also sort of you know, doesn't work because if you try to fail fast, you're not really going to succeed. You should just try to fail that fast. We would just go to students who are coming out of the university. We would give them our card. We say that, hey, you know what? Where do you want to go? Oh, you want to go to Harmony? How do you go? Oh, you go by a CNC? It's a 200 taka. Why don't you give us a 100 taka and go on a bike? And that's what people were very confused. Because motorcycle riding is something popular. So like, hey, um, what is this thing? I mean, you guys tried to kidnap me? Hi, I'm Salman Hussain, and welcome back to Beginner's Moonshot. It's a show about entrepreneurs, changemakers, and the misfits among us, where we go deep into their untold backstories and crazy ambitions. My season one is focusing on the pivoting stories from the Bangladesh startup and entrepreneurship scene. And in today's episode, I'm talking to the founder and CEO of the largest tech startup from Bangladesh, the backstories behind starting his startup, and what's next for him in his entrepreneurial adventure. Let's dive in. The capital city of Bangladesh, Dhaka, is one of the most traffic-congested cities in the world, taking up almost 3.2 million work hours every day. This has led to Bangladesh being in dire need to find a solution for minimizing traffic and saving time on daily commutes. This is where Hussein Ilyas comes in. He used to travel all over the city for work every day, spending over three hours daily just to commute. He realized that in order to mitigate his struggle of traveling, he needed to take matters into his own hands. Ilias knew that the rise of online ride-sharing was gaining traction in many parts of the world by now due to its ability to reduce traffic. So he and his friends took it upon themselves to create a service that could help people both save time and energy. Creating a new emerging market for Bangladesh in 2015, Elias founded the first ever local ride-sharing app, Batao. From its humble beginnings, Batao has now evolved into a super app providing as many as 12 different services to millions of users in the country every day. Batao is currently valued at over $100 million and Elias believes that they're just getting started. Elias, uh, thank you so much for joining my show. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good, good. Uh, thank you so much again for your time. Elias, before we go into the details, uh, tell us what does your typical day look like these days? Uh, half pandemic and also things have been opening up. Um, so what does your typical day look like? So I think, you know, the pandemic's pretty much over. And over as in, you know, at least in Dhaka, there aren't a lot of uh, pandemic-related lockdowns or any sort of restriction, right? When I go out in the streets, it's everyone's out there. I think ninety percent of the people are not wearing any masks. So things That's are crazy. Yeah. So things have opened up, and uh, you know, and you know, people are going back to normal, so to speak. Uh, so normally, you know, I start off my day usually, uh, you know, start off by going to the gym at first. And I spend some, spend an hour in the gym for a pressure hub. And then I just plug myself in working. Nowadays, I, you know, one of the things that's 
learned to to enjoy is working from home. You know, at first during the pandemic, it working from home wasn't really enjoyable at all. But now I sort of enjoy it. I enjoy the silence and you know the lack of distractions. I just can get in and just start working almost immediately. Yeah, and then uh, you know I don't really keep a track of how long I'm working. I'm usually working until seven or eight, uh, sometimes even longer. And that's sort of it. Like it's it's just me, and I just plug myself in. That's when I just you know start my day. Enjoy working. I guess this is also a sort of form of entertainment for me. And what do you do once you sort of unplug for the day uh, in your own time, in your own leisure time? So, well, now, so I uh, I got married last year, so now I actually have to spend a lot of time with. Congratulations the wife. again! Thank you. So now I have to spend a lot of time with the wife, um, and that's actually fun. That's actually enjoyable, right? Um, just to get to talk to someone every day and you know figure out what to do there. Sometimes I spend the time with my friends. Um, sometimes you know just read a book or watch TV. I'm recently you know watching the Foundation on Apple TV. It's a great show. Visually stunning. Yeah. So you know after unplugging is just you know uh, I, I just like. Give it a rest. I just don't try to think because I've already thought. I've went. I've completed my quota of just thinking and taking actions. So I just, you know, lie down and just do nothing. That, that actually, that that's a great thing you said because one of the times I remember, I think it's Jim Quick in one of his books. He talks about, uh, or or somebody else uh, that uh, there's only so many. Um, there's a fixed number of quality decisions we can make in a day. Uh, and once we have finished our quota of quality decisions, every decisions we make are basically bad decisions. So it's probably good to know your limits and and, and know that when not to make any decisions. So I feel that you sort of have this uh, sort of subconscious awareness of uh, when do you when you unplug for the day, you don't necessarily overclock your brain anymore, like we often do. Yeah, um, one thing that I'm still uh, sort of learning through is, you know, having different buckets. So let's say, you know, before I got married, right, there was only maybe two buckets that I had to deal with. One was like, the social life work uh, and the other was work, right? But now it's more than that. I think in, it changes after you get married. There are more buckets to consider. So there is a bucket around your wife and family, right? There's a bucket around what to do with your parents and parents are getting older right? how do you deal with that there's a bucket around you know your wife's friends and wife's family so there are more buckets right now um, and you know I don't know this perfect solution to how to sort of you know optimize where to put your attention in but I can definitely see that you know uh, there are a lot more things to think about. After you get married, than before you get married, that's just life. Yes, people will get used to it. Yeah. No. Anyone uh, listening to this podcast, I think one thing it's very probably different uh, from the West and the East is that in 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 East or in the Asian culture, we don't get married to a person; we get married to a family, and it basically is almost double the amount of you know attention, the amount of. Um, 
responsibilities and also it comes with a lot of great parts as well. So I think that's exactly what you're probably going through. You're still on your honeymoon, I'm guessing. So having all those um, uh, you know, early years of marriage yeah. and all the tension from all the relatives and then who not. Great. Uh, we'll come back to your personal life uh, later again. But uh, you mentioned you also read books. Um, uh, any books you've been reading lately or you love reading? Um, so recently, I've just been, you know, rereading a lot of the books, right? I have a, lot more, uh, I have a little more time nowadays. So I'm just going through the hard thing over hard things again. Ben Harowitz, that's yep. one of my favorite books ever. Um, so just, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, especially your favorite books, right? You shouldn't just read them once or maybe even twice. Sometimes the more you read them, the more information or, well, the more knowledge that you can get out of them. Because every time you read a book, you are a different person. The book doesn't change, but you're a different person. So you take a different set of knowledge over there. Um, and I really like Ben Harris. Not only has he you know, done a lot, but you know, the book, Hard Thing About Hard Things, is just about him struggling as an entrepreneur and being having success and what he has learned through that process. So um, I can relate very well to the struggles of that. And, you know, even Ben Harowitz, as big as he may be, you know, didn't achieve his success from the get-go. It, it took a lot of hard work. It took a lot of learning. It took a lot of hard decisions to really succeed. And I think that's what being an entrepreneur really is, right? You sometimes have to be detached from emotion to you know, make the best decision and the best and sometimes you have to make the best decision when there are no good decisions uh, and how to navigate that. So just re rereading that book is helping me recontextualize a lot of the you know, uh, information, a lot of the things that I picked up in my experience in Pakistan. I think that's very wonderfully put. Uh, I totally agree. And even this year, I reread a couple of books that I read this year as already. This felt like some of those books were so compelling. Um, for example, the book by Adam Grant, uh, Think Again, which is his latest books. And I reread it uh, twice just this year because I just couldn't get enough of it. And I feel that I'll probably will read it again uh, sometime end of this year over a vacation or maybe next year. So, so much powerful. And then uh, it gives you a great framework to really, really relook in your life and, and and do things differently, try things differently. So now uh, let's take a step back and then I want to go all the way back to your childhood. Um, I think everybody knows a lot about the CEO, uh, Elias uh, of Patao, one of the you know fastest growing startups in Bangladesh, you know, changing the ride sharing uh, landscape, uh, empowering people, moving Bangladesh forward. But uh, I'm sure people have very little idea of who is exactly Elias. Uh, who was he like? Uh, is he some alien who happened to be, you know, sent in Bangladesh who ends up really cracking the traffic problem which we suffered for so many decades? Or um, what was he like? So tell us, um, what was your childhood like? Who were you in your childhood? Oh, good question and very broad question, right? Who was I when I was? Feel free to take your time. Um. I don't know. Look, I 
you know, from a very early age, I just liked reading and read a lot, a lot more than any of my peers. Um, and, you know, it was Bangla books like Tinguin, like the, the clone of three investigators and famous five and all of those. And, you know, back in our school days, we had this uh, competition among our classmates, actually, on who could read the fastest. So people would just bring books. And this is like in nursery or KG1. Right? People would. Wow. Yeah. So everyone would bring books or not everyone. There's a small group of people, I guess. And we'd exchange the books. And the objective was that we needed to read as much of the books as we could in the class time because no one was allowed to take the your friend's book back home. Um, and, you know, that's sort of crazy now that I think about it. I don't know why we did all of those things. We just, I guess we just liked reading, right? So, and, you know, I, so very early on, I developed this passion to read. And, and I would just read everywhere. I'd read while I'm eating. I'm, I would read while, you know, I'm just, you know, throughout my day. Uh, and I just loved learning. Um, soon after, you know, I got really sucked into uh, programming. And back then, this is when I was in grade six, I guess, when you know I got sucked into programming. And back then, there wasn't any uh, internet. The internet connection wasn't really this good, right? So a- everyone had that up. So which year was it? So I was in grade six. So I would say I was fourteen years old, thirteen or fourteen years old. Okay. Right, so I was in da- and Dalab. so just for the context, you were in Dhaka. I was in Dhaka. Yeah. Which school did you go to that time? I went to. Uh, at first, I started off at Little Jewels, which is in Purna uh, Palton. Then I moved to Sunnydale at Grade Four, uh, and that was in Thanwandu. Yeah. Okay. So this time, so fourteen-year-old, you're still in Sunnydale, and you just get your hands on computer programming. So I got okay. So uh, first of all, I got my hand on a computer first, right? And it wasn't my computer. Um, it was one of our cousins who, you know, came in into Dhaka and staying with us for a year while he was studying in Dhaka, right? So he came from outside of Dhaka. And I got my hand on a computer. And of course, you know, the first few months, we just spent you know, trying to figure out how that magic machine works uh, and playing a lot of commandos and need for speed on it. Um Oh, yeah. Those good old days. Yeah, good old days. And and then, you know, he got an internet connection and internet connection at that time was extremely expensive. Right? You had dial up internet and it was one taka a minute plus, you know, your phone line is busy at that time. So even if you could afford it, which it was hard to, you know, it also, you know, put uh, your phone out of commission. So everyone hated it. And there was no mobile phones. So everyone depended on that of internet connections. So that was magic as well. And I really wanted more minutes. I really wanted to spend more time on the internet because Polish, you know, there's a lot of things happening over there, right? Now, the question was, how do I get my hands on, you know, more internet, right? It's a limited resource. So I learned. So back then, I think I saw this movie uh, called Hackers. Angelina Jolie played, played in it. This was a very old movie. And I really wanted to learn hacking at that point. Um, because I figured that maybe if I could hack my ISP, right, 
it maybe I can get more minutes <laughs> by hacking my ISP. I don't know. Like so, uh, and then you know I went to a few forums and they said that hey, if you want to learn hacking, the best thing to do is to learn how to do programming first. So again, this was a time when there was no you know Stack Overflow, and again you couldn't spend a lot of time inter- on the internet. So I bought a very thick Bangla book which is called like learn visual basic six or something like that right yeah and took that in and then i just from from nilket from baitul mokaro baitul mokaro yeah okay. from baitul mokaro so yeah and i tried to teach myself programming and one of the first softwares i made was a software to you know help me do my homework so at that time, I think we were learning quadratic equations, and the teacher gave us a lot of homework. Right, find out like, there's a hundred of a x square plus b x plus c equals to zero. Solve this. So I just created a software in Visual Basic that would help me like solve it step by step, and that took time, but it worked. And the thing is that you know I, I was very proud of it that I could make a software that would help me solve my homework. The thing is that you know, once I started to solve it with that software, by that time, I figured out how to solve quadratic equations, right? I learned how to solve quadratic equations. Yeah, so you know, that's how I got into all of this. A um, couple of years later, I uh, got into, uh, I got into university. And while I was in university, you know, I was playing around with trying to make my own website. With I think it was a software called I forgot the name of the software, but it was a website maker. So I started off with that, and then I started learning HTML and CSS. Um, pretty soon, I, I was able to get a job as an intern for a company in Bonani while I was, you know, still studying. And you know, I really at that time I really honed my skills on in HTML, CSS. And back then, you could also make um, Facebook apps, let's say, right? And yep. Facebook pages. In the Facebook pages, you could make apps, right? So it was a lot more customizable yep. back then. And was playing around with that. Um, so, yeah, picked up a lot of useful skills. Um, then I switched my job, and then I looked into... you know, so. While I was doing the job, the company was making us make website themes from us, right? So we got really good at making web themes. And so it was me and a friend of mine. We decided that, hey, why are we working for this company making web themes when we could make web themes ourselves, right? So we started to do that. So we quit um, and... We started to make themes, um, and then we put them up on Theme Forest. Thankfully, the first thing that we put up was actually a pretty huge success, right? It it sold thousands of copies actually, right? And then we got really that, and that was our first real step into entrepreneurship. So this time, you already left that company and built your own theme making. Sort of a company already, and it, was it like still yeah. doing it as a side hustle? We, uh, that 
at that time i left the company okay and um and how how so you said couple of thousand sales uh, what was the price for that uh, theme uh, was it on theme forest it was on theme forest so i actually checked uh, yeah. two two three days ago and i was selling at 17 dollars a pop um yeah. and I, over and you know we made a few more themes and over the next two years i think we generated around uh, almost a hundred thousand dollars in revenue but then again like team forest takes a large chunk of it uh, up front yeah but you know within mind because we made a lot of money and we were still students at that time we're still in university i think this was my third or fourth year uh so okay you know that was like a very interesting and great experience that hey you know yeah we as university students are making so much money yeah. so i was very happy to pay my university tuition with that nice yeah uh let me uh, step back a bit so you were studying into a english medium school yeah so you finished your o levels and a levels yeah and um one of the trends among the students who go to english medium school is to also explore you know abroad they would sort of you know study abroad or they would select certain type of you know subjects for their major so why did you decide to stay in bangladesh and what were you studying at north south university which is what which is your undergrad uh, university um i'll answer the second question first which is so i started with studying bba bachelor's in business administration at north south um around in uh, i think couple months later i tried to switch to computer science because i realized that i was very good at this but the teachers won't let me they asked me to hey come back later and then and then i never did because i was too lazy <laughs> um yeah because i was assuming because someone who started programming quite early on during the school days uh, would probably have a more strong knack towards uh, computer science or any of those engineering courses so yeah so but it's it's a shame that you're not allowed to pursue computer science but let's let's carry on yeah. yeah i mean it's fine right in hindsight it worked out well um and for the first question why didn't i go abroad so i think you know everyone sort of expects you to go abroad um so back then i read this book paradise lost by john milton right so i also had this very difficult one yeah i i also had this phase where i was like really trying to you know, explore what's my philosophy in life is right? so it was really a lot of religion book and you know, paradise lost wasn't one of them but sort of similar and in that book i think it was the it was satan who got cast out of heaven right and he fell and uh, and then he created his own kingdom and i don't remember this exactly but one of the quotes that he said over there is it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven and that sort of struck me right because i know that back then my friends who were going abroad they were um you know doing odd jobs in mcdonalds and stuff like that you know just to make it work and to me i thought that hey you know what it's better to be big in a small country rather than very very small in a very big country 
So that was sort of the drive, my motivation to sort of stick around and try to do as much as I could in the in Bangladesh. So that just that one quote. Sure. So now you're studying. Uh, you know, like at this point, you're studying uh, your BBA uh, undergrads, uh, bachelor's in business administration. You still have your business in parallel, which is making a lot of money. Uh, what's going on in your mind? Uh, what were you contemplating at this point uh, while you were sort of uh, passing through your university years? Yeah. So um, you know, uh, when you're in your university, so one thing that I did not really get to enjoy much because you know, I think I over-indexed on working is um, so is, is I didn't really have much of a social life, right? I didn't have many friends. I did not do that club scene. There's a lot of clubs. I never was never a part of any of them. Uh, so didn't really have much of a social life. Uh, outside of all of this, you know, the offices that I went to, I spent almost one year. So I lived in Motijil. My university was at this point in Boshundhara. And the office that I was going to uh, was in Uttara. Right? So I... So just for context, uh, this is basically the three extremes of Bangladesh. Motijil is the furth- furthest in the south. Uh, uh, university is yeah. Boshundhara, which is, I would say, somewhere center uh, north. And then uh, Uttara is basically the northest part of the... Uh, the capital so really really um yeah, yeah. so okay. i you know now that i think about it right i don't know why what i was thinking on those offices it didn't really pay much i guess i just went and you know i had a friend with me sadat he was you know was with me throughout all of this journey as well right and sadat was with me in these jobs that i was doing sadat was with me in the teams that i was making so he was there with me, and he lived in Narayanganj, right, which is way, oh, wow. way south. So he would make the journey with me, and you know, it was fun. While we were in the bus, bus, I took, I actually spent a lot of time again, like reading in the bus. So that I had this one year where I took up on the challenge of reading fifty-two books in fifty-two weeks. So that helped, I guess, you know, distract me. But again. It was a very long distance to cover. It took me almost two hours, sorry, sorry one hour to go to university, another hour from, to go from university to my office. Uh, and then this was, and then when I want to come back from office, that would take sometimes two and a half, three hours, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. of the traffic. Uh, but again, the, the, this, I was still young and, uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, what I should do next. This was also around a time when uh, the Bangladesh was going through a lot of political unrest. So I remember uh, sometimes going to university was very difficult because a lot of buses were being burned, right? And there was one day I had to walk half, almost half the way to university. Anyway, so it was tough, but um, this uh, and this this weird political situation I think you'll remember the opposition party would always call for a general strike, a hartal every Sunday 
and they would say that the hartal is until wednesday and on wednesday they would sometimes announce a strike on thursday sometimes they would not announce a strike on thursday right so i i don't know what strategy they're following i think they just wanted to confuse everyone uh but what this led to was in facebook every other week everyone was asking hey is tomorrow hartal is tomorrow hartal um and you know there was and obviously you could find this information in a newspaper website but people wouldn't go to a newspaper website people would just ask them ask them facebook so i just created one website for it we just said it was called is tomorrow hartal.com and all it did was it had a very big yes or a no written on it that's it right um so i made that entire website as a joke uh, it took me an hour to make it and then i put it up and i put it on you know facebook and that sort of blew up right everyone started coming into that website i got like hundreds of thousands of hits and i got i get called from radio station the newspaper about this website is this groundbreaking website that I created it wasn't really groundbreaking it just a yes or a no but i think people loved uh, the the sarcasm of, of all of it the, the people got a lot of fun out of it yeah so that was like our first you know when i first saw some little bit of fame right um so that was fun and but that sort of opened up a lot of doors because i started getting a lot of inbound calls hey you know what you seem to be uh you seem to have your head in the right place would you want to work with us or would you want to promote this in your website because that website has a lot of traffic um uh, all of those things so yeah so that's how i'm you know started to meet more people eventually uh and that sort of that sort of brings us to the hack house chapter of the story yeah. right this is when i uh got introduced to you know fine sale and i had adnan with me who's the co-founder at pathau uh, so separate so side story over here is adnan's a very old friend i met him again over facebook but then in real life when he came to dhaka from rashahi and i brought him in to help me make teams with me because there was a lot of teams that i didn't i wasn't very good at javascript he was a coder proper coder so he helped me out uh and then with we brought in adnan sadat and and this is when i met fine saleh and we together we started hack which was business incubation uh platform and and which year was this uh 2013 12 i think this was around 15 or 16 okay. i think i think it's around 15 yeah 15 yeah i think so 15 yeah but i feel that uh, because i i know i know fine in person uh, it's uh, it's very sad that he's no longer with us but one of the most talented uh, entrepreneurs i've met um uh, bangladeshi born entrepreneurs um he used to travel to bangladesh at during those years quite often and we were building uh, the gnr ad network that time and he was very close to nash and that's how i know him and 
he would come and share all his crazy ideas or the things he want to do, and then how he feels that this is the right time for Bangladesh to really start, you know, looking into building products and then really incubating, you know, uh, great ideas and then to really giving them a shape. Yeah, a, a lot of things was happening back then, right? There was drink entrepreneurs, such a networking event. Uh, right. I, yeah, I think it's 2014. Actually, you're right. 1314, around that time. Yeah. It's interesting times. Yeah. No, so I'll come back to that time period uh, shortly, but um, just to um, give a bit more information here. So, by this time, you when which year did you graduate? You graduated in 2012, 13. I graduated in 14. 14. So while you were graduating, you already had this business of yours, making themes. Yeah. And usually, people who study business, they either think of starting their own companies or go working for corporates. Did you go to work for a corporate? Did you not? Well, I did an internship at a corporate, uh, if that counts. Which one? Uh, BAT. Okay, so you went to BAT. So BAT is uh, BAT is basically British American Tobacco for anyone listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was fun, and, and after the thing is that after uh, I graduated, I think it was in thirteen actually, not fourteen, is I did you know. To start to apply at different jobs at different places, and the thing is, I didn't get jobs. <laughs> I didn't get those jobs, so I thought that okay, you know what? I what are some of your what are some of your epic rejections that you you were really sort of bumped by during those years? I mean, should I mention them? I don't know. <laughs> but they're they're big MNCs. They're large MNCs. Eh, sure. Like there's not there's 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 a there's a handful of them in Bangladesh. I'm sure people will be looking through their HR record to see. Okay, so we didn't basically hire the CEO of Pathau. So. I, I, I don't I don't mind. I don't mind. So, uh, but yeah. But why do you think it didn't work out? And 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 what was going through your mind at that time? So. In one end, you have your business uh, that was making some money, but you also wanted to seek corporate jobs. Why did you want to get into corporate? What made you want to go to the corporate? I, I think it's just how I was primed to, I was trained to, right? Like there is this expectation that you're supposed to go into one of these corporate jobs, right? There is Expectation from who? Like your school or from your parents? Everyone, if, literally everyone. Right? Your friends are going and joining these corporates. Your Family expects you to get like a quote unquote good job. Your teacher, I had this one teacher who sort of you know trained us how to do, you know, how to take, how to do, uh, give interviews, right? And yeah. it, we were primed to go join corporates. It's not. I don't think anything else was an option, right? Everyone. Yeah. Yeah, so that we didn't even consider that as an option for a very long time, really. Okay. Now, since you mentioned a little bit about you know the the expectation from the society families, so right now, so at this stage, uh, roughly around 2014, 15, you're at Hack House in the middle of uh, sort of bootstrapping yeah. what eventually became Pathau. Tell us a little bit more about the Hack House. Uh, Hack House was one of the earliest. Uh, Sort of startup incubators in Bangladesh, and it was very um, way ahead of time, and in, in many ways, were um, having the right sort of you know purpose and ambitions. Tell us 
what was it like to be part of Hack House? And when you were incubating the idea of Pathau, the the pre-Pathau version of Pathau, what was it? What was it at that time that you're solving? So the strategy of Hack House was it aimed to be something similar to Rocket Internet, right? I think that uh, was less of a business incubator, more of a venture studio. So the idea was to bring in very smart people, help them develop the business, right? And then make those people sort of run the business, right? So you take a larger portion, so hackers would take a larger portion of the company going forward. Uh, but it would have very deep um, stake and very deep develop, and it would give a lot of its product development tech expertise trying to you know, build those uh, businesses. So that was sort of the model. And, and what were some of the other startups who were also being, or ideas that were being incubated that time at Hackhouse? So there was a couple, right? And in this business incubator stance, the philosophy that we're following is that, you know, build fast, build fast, right? So we built a lot of things, and a lot of things did not, of course, also pan out. Number one, so we built this thing called Call Spring. Yeah, and this was a IVR-based survey system, basically. So let's say for garments workers, you want to service uh, with them or service for them. Uh, these garments workers don't know how to read or write, and there are millions of them. So the idea was making a robocall in that number, and the robot voice would say, ah, hey, you like your working conditions, one for yes, two for no, things like that. And uh, you press one or two for the A version of that was missed call marketing. That was also big. Again, this was a time when you know, calling people was very expensive. I think it was like three taka, four taka per minute. So the idea was that there was a number, you'd give it a missed call. And the number will call you back automatically with information. So that was sort of a Advertise video advertisement, so to speak. Uh, so that was one idea. We started something called Dhaka Rides, uh, which Fahad from Pata also led. Uh, it was a, it was a carpooling service, not a carpooling service, where we had our own cars. So we rented a microbus and we started providing the service around uh, Boshundhara, Komlapur, Mutichil area. That circuit right for people who are going to university or to work so we started that we started something called Jabin which was a precursor to Pathau and Jabin worked with CNGs and you know the first challenge is CNG drivers do not have smartphones so we took the call spring tech right and we sort of changed it up a little bit and we put it in Jabin so the idea was that so and we gave each uh, CNG puller a key ring with a, phone, a few phone numbers. So let's say if you're in Borani, call this number. If you're in Hanmundi, call this number. If you're in Uttara, call this number. And well, it was a missed call. So whenever a driver would give a missed call to that number, the system would log that 
particular driver in that area. And then there was a website where you could go to and you could find all the drivers in the area. And then the user would just call out the driver directly. Um, so that's uh, offline. That's a web, that's a you know, text-based um, path out right now. So we started that. Right. Yeah, it's a couple of different projects like this, right? And even Patao at first, it didn't really start off as ride sharing. Patao means send. We tried to send things, right? Uh, so we started our service as an on-demand delivery, right? And the idea was that if you need something to be sent from point A to point B immediately, there's a lot of traffic out there, you'd use Patao. Um, and we built a very simple app. We had a phone number and everything. Um, that's how, you know, uh, Patha also started. Again, most of these did not last for more than three or four months. And I think, you know, the, this is where the build fast, fail fast mentality also sort of you know, doesn't work because if you try to fail fast, you're not really going to succeed. If you're just trying to fail that fast, right? I think the reason that Pata worked is because we spent a lot more time on Pata. We were just trying to make Pata work versus in all the other ventures, we're just building them. We're just getting it out to the market. We got some responses, some good, some bad. And then we're like, oh, okay, this is not going to work and move on to the next one. When in a real business, I mean, a real startup, I guess we, you have a hypothesis and then you test it and then you change the hypothesis. You don't immediately move away from that and change your hypothesis altogether. You sort of modify it and try to see how that works. You have an iterative process on building a business rather than just starting, stopping, starting, stopping. That doesn't work, we think. Right. No, I think that's pretty much is the innovation cycle where you spend your time in the exploration first and then once you're ready, you build the MVP, but most people try like first iteration of MVP. They don't get their expected traction, and they often decide to just sort of close and stop doing what they're doing. And I think that's exactly where they are mistaken because they don't do multiple iterations to see if they get the product market fit. And it's, I think it all comes down to the product market fit uh, for all of these companies and startups and businesses. Um, so I also remember a very brief interaction. Um, uh, during this uh, early days, um, uh, when we used to organize uh, Google Business Group's uh, tech events every month, and I remember it was one of those events that we did probably at Basis uh, Auditorium, where also Wasim Bhai, the CEO of Charter, was also speaking, and you were also probably one of the uh, attendees of the event. Where, if I remember correctly, you once mentioned you probably had a chat with someone, maybe Wasim Bhai. Where you first got to know about this company called GoCheck, uh, this Indonesian uh, ride-sharing giant. Um, tell us uh, about that conversation, and uh, was this the conversation that sort of was eventually that led to you um, further pivoting towards the partner that we have today, or was it something else? So funny that the first person to mention GoCheck to me was Wasim Bhai, right? And she did it, and then I looked it up, right, and I thought what they were doing was very interesting. Um, so, the, but you know, we didn't really start on that journey until I think almost a year later. So, in 
so coming back to starting Pata and doing on-demand deliveries, we tried that for almost three months, and we didn't get too much of a response from it. The response that we get, we're targeting with consumers, right? We're trying to see if consumers would want to send anything from point A to point B very, very quickly. Turns out that consumers don't really have that much of a need for it. You don't always need to send something somewhere every day, right? Uh, but businesses, right? And this was a time when e-commerce business, f-commerce business in Bangladesh was just starting up, right? The, the Razas of the world was just starting to expand. And there wasn't a reliable logistics provider. So we got some contacts and some e-commerce business reached out. They said, asked, hey, you know what? We really want to take your service, but A, the price has to be lower. And B, you know, uh, sorry, the price has to be lower and we'll send you a lot of goods to send every day. And B, um, you don't need to send them immediately. You can take your time. You can take one or two days. That's fine. Right? And thought that, hmm, okay. That may work. So uh, we basically changed our entire business model from a peer-to-peer delivery to a hub-and-spoke model where our pickup agents will pick up the items at first, bring them to in our office at that time, and then from here do the deliveries on the, the next day. And once we made that change, that when we reduced our price point, immediately we started getting more clients, right? We we, char- we changed our price point and we changed our uh, target customers. It was no longer consumers, it was businesses. So that really started the traction cycle, right? Getting us more merchants, meant more deliveries, more deliveries to customers, meant you know, we're just generating more money. And then we started, it started to look like, hey, this is going to work. And so uh, that was what happened. Um, of course, you know, that was like a fun and interesting time because, okay, this is the first time, you know, people were, people, one of the projects that we start, started is actually working. But at the same time, again, like we didn't really have a lot of resources. So I had to do a lot of everything. I had to be the first person to come to office before even the pickup agents could come, before the delivery agents could leave with the items for delivery. And after they left, I had to you know, call up other merchants, try to get more merchants or try to do customer service or try to do accounts. And then I also had to be the last person to leave because the deliver the pickup agents would come and they would have to give their products to us and those would need to be sorted overnight. So most of that was done by me, and I think I had one colleague with me to support me. Uh, Adnan at this time was still like building the tech. We didn't really have tech; it was very manual. We managed everything in an Excel sheet. Uh, yeah, so that's how we started to get traction at first. And the first time we actually raised capital was not as a ride-sharing company, right? We didn't have ride-sharing back then. It was just as a delivery company. When we were figuring out the how to deliver packaging here, I I think um, I think this is a good uh, sort of uh, leeway into the conversation about fundraising as to which is a very critical phase for any startups for their survival um, to manage their burn rate. 
So you register, you raised your first round more of a logistics company than a ride-sharing company. Where did you um, get your first uh, investments from? Was it local investment, international, uh, angels? Who are they? Why did they decide to invest in this company that was still managing out of Excel spreadsheet and this one, two guys trying to do everything? <laughs> so uh, I think you know, a large part of it was helped by uh, so Fahim's friend Rahat at that point, right? Rahat Ahmed, who I'll come back to him very quickly. So, you know, Fahim at this time, you know, he left Bangladesh. He was back in New York, uh, trying to figure out his stuff over there. And, you know, we were in Bangladesh trying to build this, right? So I think Fahim mentioned it to Rahat that, hey, this is a business that he has and you know, they're looking to response. And then Rahat was the one who used to work with this person, David, who was a very early investor in Gojek. So Rahat then um, you know, introduced us to David, and David is someone who was quite regular coming to Bangladesh regularly. He's a big investor in public markets over here. And I think and he made a trip. He came to our office. Our office was literally in a garage at that point. We moved out of the swanky hack house office and we're trying to do everything. Pata was a separate entity at this point and we're trying to do everything by ourselves. And David came in and he saw what we were building, right? Uh, and we had a very deep conversation about where I, we think the business will go. So after the conversation he decided to invest and he was also joined by uh, two other people so it was uh, Tanvir Ali and Siamak Kamali uh, and they're also big in Bangladesh right now uh, so we got some local investors Tanvir Ali was a local investor over here and uh, David was also David was a foreign investor they came in uh, if you ask me why did they come in and it, they invested in this small idea in the two of us, I don't know. Right? They, they tell me a lot of things. They tell me a lot of reasons, right? But I will not disregard the fact luck has played a big role in all of this, right? Um, I think, you know, the reasons that they gave were that, oh, you know what, my communication was very good. But for someone who has never been to the U.S. or outside of Bangladesh, my communication was on point. The thing is that my communication was good. My English is good because, again, I read a lot of books, right? So, so I was able to carry on a conversation with them and answer their questions very well, even though I was very young and obviously inexperienced. Right? And I think that impressed them. But I think it also worked out in my favor is, you know, Gojek was doing very well at that time. And people thought, that, oh, you know what, this company could become the Gojek of Bangladesh. Right? And we had right. an early investor of Gojek over here. I think a lot of investors are really like pattern matching beings. So they probably Correct. matched, oh, there's a similar company in Indonesia. Maybe this company could be something like that, right? Yeah, it's working in a similar sector, right? 
um, so I think all of those sort of worked. Right? It wasn't one thing; it was a lot of things, and, and a large part of luck. Right? The fact that we got connected to someone who was early investor in Gojek was luck. Right? Uh, it was like three, two degrees removed from where I am. I've never been to the US. I've never met Rahab or David at that point. The fact that they came to Dhaka for an unrelated business was also luck, right? They wouldn't invest if they didn't see us in action. So yeah, all of those things, I think, work in favor. So you get your first check for your angel round, which is like a, let's say, seed money or pre-seed money. And what happens next? So what happens to, uh, so now you have to, uh, you're now focusing on building the product. At what point you decided to pivot from being only a logistics company into building a ride sharing? So, you know, at this point, you know, we had the money. It was, I'll not go into the challenges of trying to bring money to Bangladesh. That's like another uh, a hellhole. There's no really clear description on how to bring in foreign investment, like the, uh, the mechanics of bringing that over here, right? But we managed to do that because you're still you're still registered as a local entity in Bangladesh. You didn't have any Singapore entity back then. That's why it was difficult for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the mechanics of that took us several months to figure out the legal mechanics of it. Um, yeah. Eventually, you know, we did get the money in slowly at first, and you know, we're still building our delivery business. Now the delivery team has grown from three people to thirty people, right? You know, one of the things that we recognized is these deliveries happen at a very set amount of time, right? It usually happens between 12 to 5 p.m. Because in the morning, people are just busy going to work, right? And in the evening, people are coming back from work to their homes. They're in the road at this time. And so only deliveries can happen between 12 to 5. I have 30 people. They're sort of sitting idle for most of the day. And I wanted to utilize them. How do I utilize them? Right? Um, then, of course, you know, I learn about, I learn more about Kojek. I learn more about ride sharing at this point. Right? Bangladesh. I've never seen ride sharing until then. I, even then, right? I didn't really go out of the country much. But I decided to give that a try. Uh, so, most of my delivery fleet was in cycles. I only had three motorcycles, right? And that was some of the biggest purchases I made at that point. Uh, I said that, okay, you know what? We'll use these motorcycles for uh, moving people around. And again, like we didn't have any app or anything. All we, I started a Facebook group called it Pahar Rides Beta, and I added all my friends in. And I asked all of them, hey, if you need a ride, go and start using this. And you know, people took that very positively. People would call my call me. So my number was public over there. So people could call me and say that, Bhaiya, I need a ride from A to B, right, at X, Y, and Z time. And I would call, I would then call my riders and say that, okay, go over here, pick this person up, right? It's a very manual process. Um, and that you know, went on for a few months, right? We were doing maybe 10, 20 rides a day, right? People liked our service. 
Now, the problem is that we were really unable to scale that. There was no way for us to scale that. We only had three bytes, right? We didn't have any app. Um, yeah. So this was, I think what really helped was, again, like capital played a very big role. Right? So uh, again, it was our same investors who uh, you know, gave us more capital and said, okay, you know what? Go ahead and buy some bikes, buy more bikes. We have three bikes. We're testing it out. That's fine. Go buy 50 bikes. Go buy 100 bikes. And then equip them and see how that works. Right? So use those funds. We bought 100 bikes and we tried, We started to hire people to give them rides. Right? No longer was it feasible for my phone to you know, cater to all those customers. We got more people in. We now have a call center which would connect people uh, and we just at this point we try, we were scaling up our supply supply of motorbikes right but now that we have a hundred bikes the question is where do we get our demand from right we didn't really have much of a the demand was still sort of friends and friends of friends so uh, you know I started to hire like better people and so Fahad, Kishwar, Sifat, some of the early uh, people in Patao, they came in and they brought in a lot of energy. Right? So they said, that, okay, you know what? We need to do ground activation. Facebook isn't working anymore. Facebook group isn't working anymore. So uh, people from our team, they would go in front of universities. right? And one of the big things was that we'd go in front of universities, we'd have like 10 bikes. Right? Everyone was wearing Pathar shirt. And we would just go to students who were coming out of the university. We'd give them our car. We'd say that, hey, you know what? Where do you want to go? Oh, you want to go to Dharmondi? How do you go? Oh, you go by a CNC? It's a 200 taka. Why don't you give us a 100 taka and go on a bike? And at first, people were very confused because motorcycle riding is not very popular. So we'd be like, hey, um, what is this thing? I mean, are you guys tried to kidnap me? This is strange, uh, but you know, people started, you know, using it, right? So we got a few people to start using Pathal, and they liked it. And they, again, like, we give them the card, right? We did it the second time. We did it the third time. We went to everything. We went to Brack University and North South University, and we did different activations. By the third or the fourth day, people started calling us, right? students they started calling us i said that my class is over at this time and he picked me up like okay this is working now right so that's how we got you know our product was really like start working um this is around i think 2016 and we finally released our app right and that's when things just skyrocketed right our apps are a uh, lot of purpose. It no longer did people need to call us, and the matching happened instantly with the writers. So things very soon became much more faster, much more convenient. And people used the app from their call center. We still got a lot, lot of calls from people who did not have Android phones. Right? People are like, uh, like I don't know how to use an app. I don't have a smartphone. Um, and we had to make a decision that, okay, you know what? We're only going to serve people who have smartphones. 
right? We had to make that, and we had to say no to a lot of customers. But what an interesting side effect was people started buying smartphones just to use Pathfinder, right? So all of those sort of came together around December of 2016, right? And I think that's how what I would call the launch of our app. That's how we sort of started our ride-sharing business. Yeah. So, and that was crazy. That was a crazy month. And, uh, no, I think this is, is probably, I also very remember clearly because um, transportation has always been a big pain in Bangladesh and Dhaka in particular, one of the densest, uh, densely populated uh, cities in the world. And even we didn't have a proper taxi rides. Uh, Uber also was very new in Bangladesh. They're just trying to bootstrap themselves as to how to create the habit of people, you know, calling this rides to basically, you know, as someone who is basically an, a stranger come and pick you up and then you have to trust and then, you know, go on their ride and go to your destination. And I think that played a definitely a good sort of um, role in helping educate the market of using this type of ride-sharing services more and more, and it became the new normal. Um, do you remember any of the biggest pain points at this point uh, while you were just sort of seeing the big potential of what it can be? And I'm sure your investors by this time are also happy. And uh, is, is this the time when you have raised your Series A already or were you yet to raise your Series A when you got your app launched for the first time for ride-sharing? No, we were still uh, in our seed phase. We did uh, another seed round um, and that sort of helped us get to where we needed to be. Um, so, yeah, so this was a time when we you know, started exploring and onboarding freelance drivers in our platform, right? Because we, you know, we had a hundred bikes, but they were uh, always busy, and our needs was more more than what a hundred drivers can fulfill. So this is when we actually started to go on to that ride sharing model, slowly shift away from the ride sharing model. Things that worked in our favor was that again, like we had that lock supply, right? Uh, that hundred drivers. So that really helped us to bootstrap uh, the demand. Once we, so I think once we have supply lock, then we started working on the demand. Then once we started working on the demand and we had too much demand, then we had to go back and work on the supply. Um, yeah. So this was a big learning on how to do all of those. And of course, you know, this was a crazy time because you know, things were always breaking. The app wasn't working that well. The drivers was some they were trained, but they were not, you know, very professional, right? So we had to teach them all of those things. There was a time that also happened where one of our drivers um, caused a scene on the road, right? So we decided for one day just to close off Pathau. We brought all the drivers back into the office. We sat down with them. We retrained every one of them, and then we, you know, sent them out again. Right, so we had to do a lot of these uh, things, like, and we had a fire, fire drill. We call them fire drills. Like every day was a fire drill. Right, every day it was like something broke in the morning, 
and took a, and he was running around trying to solve it. It was crazy, but it was a lot. So, just to give some more context in terms of the the building journey of Pathau as a platform, because when you are scaling, it's not just the scale of um, supply side uh, in terms of the logistics and the riders uh, and their bikes. It's also scaling the platform, um, and there hasn't been any precedence in Bangladesh uh, of such platforms. So you can't necessarily hire anyone who has been there, done that. And at the same time, in terms of the overall engineering pool, it's not necessarily that uh, easy to find, you know, full stack engineers and then product uh, developers or product owners um, at that point in those early years. How did you handle that? How did you manage to find people and bring in the people who would basically be the foundation for creating the right uh, senior leadership at Pathau? Uh So. I think uh, one thing that worked well is that you know, Pata was a very exciting concept, right? So it attracted the right people. The problem was interesting, and people started reaching out to me that, hey, I would like to join, right? And so I wouldn't say that there was no challenges in hiring. Of course, there were challenges, like sometimes you wouldn't get the right type of people. But it helped that the company was very mission driven, and everyone was extremely aligned. Like it, people would use Pathau, sorry, the, the and let's say our quarters, they would push a fix, right? Immediately, their friends will receive it, and, and the quarters will feel very good. Hey, you know what? I just pushed that fix out, and I can see it working in real life. My friends are using it. Versus what happens in most companies, well, is that you do something and you push it out, but you wouldn't really see it work, right? If you are an outsourcing company, you don't see it work in real life. But over here, your friends are using platform. So that gave people, I think, a lot of joy. And... While the Uber also had their sort of ride sharing with the bikes already launched at this point, how did you find competing with the global giant who has been there, done that in so many other markets, who had much more advanced uh, you know, platform and technology stack uh, against this company in Bangladesh which is just bootstrapping it purely with a bunch of people who haven't quite necessarily worked in any of these companies before yet. Yeah, so for a very long time, you know, Uber was in the four-wheeler category and we were in the two-wheeler category, right? So we did not really compete, per se. Um, the price point of Uber was three times, four times higher than a Patham. So it attracted a different sort of customer set than us, right? So we didn't really compete. Um, I remember that we got wind of you know, Uber launching motorcycles in sometime, I think it was October, September or October. And we were like, okay, you know what? We're going to launch cars before they launch bikes. So we very, very, we just worked overnight and we launched cars in seven days, right? Just to go first. And then we did that. Um, uh, and... From there on out, you know, it 
there was a lot of competition, but again, like the market was growing. I think Uber was growing. We were also growing because we were both. The market was still, you know, getting used to right being created. Market was being created, yeah. so it wasn't so much of a competition. We're not trying trying to get eat each other market share. Market was big enough at that point, right? So they were giving, uh, they were doing a lot of promotions, and we were doing a lot of promotions. So having competition, that's actually helped. It also helped that sometimes taking the spotlight away from us from a regulatory standpoint, right? Regulators would you know, go after the foreign company, not the local company. And sometimes when the regulators would attract, you know, target the local company, uh, there were people, the journalists who were speaking in our favor. Because the journalists would say that, hey, do you guys not want digital Bangladesh? I thought you guys wanted digital Bangladesh. This is what digital Bangladesh looks like. And that also helped us on the regulations front, right? Having both a local and a foreign company. So I wouldn't say that having competition is a bad thing. It's a good thing to create that market, create that awareness. Again, if we're the only ones, maybe, you know, we wouldn't be as um, aggressive on trying to acquire customers, trying to build brands, trying to, you know, figure out regulations, all of those things, right? So having competition definitely helped rather than hurt us in the early days. Right. Now, as the market started expanding and you started also growing your business, uh, you definitely needed more uh, funding. So, how did you raise your uh, future rounds? I assume the last valuation was roughly over $100 million already for Bata. Uh, where, where exactly do you guys stand today as of now in terms of your funding and your valuation? So our Series A, in which you know, um, it was led by Gojek. So we were, went to Indonesia, I pitched the company directly to Nadim, who was the CEO at that point. And... Right. Uh, it was one of their first investments outside of Indonesia right, to Bangladesh. Um, and getting Gojek in the cap table helped, getting that money helped us to you know, hire more people and sort of grow the business. Um, it brought in other investors as well who were invested in Gojek, right? So fundraising for the first two years wasn't very difficult, right? Well, I wouldn't say it wasn't very difficult. It was difficult, but you know, we had a path. We were, we knew who to target. We knew what to say to them. We know how to sell. Uh, now, you know, that was in 2017, I think, right? And this is 2021. Between then and now, we have expanded our service. Right now, it's not just writing our deliveries, right? We have food delivery, which is the major vertical of Patao. We have 14 different services in Patao. Uh, uh, we recently, as of, as of early this year, we also acquired a payments license, uh, a PSP license from Bangladesh Bank to operate our own uh, wallet, which we are in the process of launching. We just launched uh, Patao BNPL, Patao Pay Later. Right, which is a BNPL service, and buy now, pay later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So we just launched that, and that has been received by the populace by, the, by our clients very well. So, so you're applying BNPL for what type of services? All services from Bata? At this point, we, it's a ecosystem. All the Bata ecosystem products has a BNPL service. Okay. Right. So, um, so we are. St- no longer just a ride-sharing and delivery company, basically. We are that super app platform. And our fintech ambition, which we even had back then in 2017, right? It just took us a very long time just to get over here, where we, now we are a licensed entity operating all of these things right under the Bangladesh Bank jurisdiction. So, you know, that super app vision of Patao Pay, Patao Wallet sort of connecting everything together where you have rides, food, you know, health, groceries, pharmaceutical delivery, to do your top-ups now, everything is in the same platform. So Parao has evolved to be that super platform for Bangladesh. And, and I'm very happy that and proud that we have sort of made it work. Right? And the company so far, we have raised over $45 million. Right? Um, right now and uh, yeah and you know we're just we are still growing yeah and so what's your total customer base right now how many people are receiving or buying services from you registered with Bata? so we have around 8 million downloads in our app right a lot of in Bangladesh as well as you know in Nepal as well right which we did not talk about so I guess Bata is the first multinational startup out of Bangladesh. So, you know, I, I say that with a lot of pride and also in tongue in cheek. My parents wanted me to work in an MNC. Hey, mom, <laughs> I am an MNC now. So, um, you know, our app's very popular in Nepal, right? And uh, where there isn't any Uber, there isn't much of a competition. So, we're pretty big over there. We just launched food over there as well. So we do, you know, a couple hundred thousand transactions every day, you know, paid transactions every day at this point. So, yeah, that's where we are. Great. And um, I, I I think we have seen this quite um, uh, similarly in the, the developed part of Asia and in the West as well. Mostly in the Asia, actually, than in the West in terms of ride-sharing companies turning into a super app. Uh, here in Thailand, you know, we use Gojek, uh, so we use Go- Grab, um, uh, which is a super app, and then Gojek in Indonesia. Um, now, why do you think these apps are pivoting to becoming a super app? Uh, what is it? Uh, is it the users asking for it, or is this the right business transition in order for reaching that scale uh, and then to making sense of the investments made by the investors? Hmm. I think, you know, it all stems from the fact that uh, ride-sharing isn't really um, that profitable of a business, right? If you look at this from a standalone basis, even if you look at Uber and Lyft in uh, the West, right, they are they struggle to really turn a profit, even after decades since they have launched. So it's Ride sharing is a very important use case, right? It is 
something that everyone needs every day. So people open up the app every day. But the idea of a super app is that, okay, you're having these people open up the app and people are taking that service, but how do you monetize all of this attention that you have? So that's when the super app sort of story comes in, that it's not just about ride sharing. Ride sharing is sort of a lost leader over here, right? Although, you know, in Patao, we are actually, you know, more than making, we actually make money on our ride sharing product. But, you know, it's not very profitable compared to, let's say, a food delivery business, right? Compared to BNPL, it's not as profitable as it could be. So the idea is, being that loss leader, trying to get people to use your app and then cross-promoting them into other more profitable ventures. And that's sort of the strategy that all the super apps sort of you know, uh, focus on. Uh, so ride-sharing is an important pillar to make the super app work. I don't think any super app works in ba- anywhere without ride-sharing. But then what do you do with all of those users, right? Maybe some of them are going to do food delivery. Maybe some of them are just going to top up their phone. Maybe some of them are going to play games and see some ads, right? All of those are high margin play and all of those take uh, less cost sort of to get, get delivery, right? Um, fintech is an important angle for super apps as well because, again, like there's a lot of transactions that is happening. If you look at let's say, other payment apps or payment services in Bangladesh, right? Where are they used mostly? And you'll find that they're mostly used in remittance, right? People are using Pikash or Anago to send money from point A to point B, right? They're not really using it for payments, right? Not so, but since super apps have this huge use case list, right? where people are using them for those transactions every day, suddenly you could put a wallet in and you could drive a lot of volume to the wallet automatically, right? And that just doubles your GMB almost instantly. So Correct. Uh, so those are very, very important uh, metrics. So yeah, I think rationing is extremely important like you cannot build a super app without ride sharing but if you do only ride sharing then you're not really a profitable business absolutely no i think uh, we're seeing the same pattern here in southeast asia as well i decided to step down for a lot of reasons but you know mostly for two one is that uh you know i want to be considered a serial entrepreneur right and i can't be a serial entrepreneur if I'm stuck in that same, uh, same sales problem and same business, right? Uh, as you, as I told you through my journey, right? There was a lot of different startups projects that I tried before I sort of you know, settled on Patao and tried, made it big. And beside Patao, you know, I also advise a lot of startups. A lot of startups come for me for advice, and you know, I, I feel like at this point. I give them a lot of advice, but I also know that there are certain things that I can do better than anyone else because of the experience that I've had. So I want to take all these experiences, six years of struggle with me, and and start something new which solves a completely different problem set. Right? 
And there's a couple of problems that, that really excites me. Uh, I'm still sort of locking them down, like which one I need to target because I know that whichever I fall settle down with, I have to spend another six years on it, seven years on it, right? Perhaps even more. So I'm spending a lot of time to think about those problems, but I think I'm very close to it and I'm soon going to announce uh, what I'm doing next. Sure. And uh, I also understand the transition. Uh, I believe this is one of those very um, first of its kind uh, transition for a startup of this scale in Bangladesh as well, in terms of the leadership um, founder sort of moving uh, away from the day-to-day execution. Um, how difficult was this decision for you um, to sort of step down and how did you decide on your successor? Yeah. So it was a very tough decision. It was a, because I, you know, I worry a lot about what's going to, you know, happen to the company. But also I have, you know, I made a couple of very good hires back in the day and they have sort of stepped up and they've done like really well. So the, you know, uh, and that has shown as well. So Fahim Ahmed, who started off as a CFO of Patal and then became president, and now is going to take on the CEO role. And Fahim has been in Patal for three years at this point. We have worked very closely in that three years. And there are a lot of ways that he's even better than me right, at running a company like this. So I have a lot of faith in Fahim as well as a leadership on going forward with Patao and sort of seeing that Patao vision play out, right? I am still in the company. I will be, I'll continue as a member of the board and um, as a senior advisor. So I'll, I'll be here, right? I'll just not be active on the day-to-day. I'll be here to help guide strategy and move forward. Great. Uh, definitely very excited to see what's happening and coming next for you in your future ventures. But let's move to the final part of the interview where I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions and we'll, we'll hopefully you'll be able to answer in a one line or two lines uh, at the most. So first question, what wakes you up in the morning? A cup of coffee. <laughs> sure. Um, what does making money mean to you? Uh, freedom. Freedom. Want to? Uh, yeah, sorry, that's Not going to explain that. Great. Okay. Um, are you a millionaire? Only in my dreams, man. On paper. On paper. Sure. Um, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs considering starting a business now? I think just start. Um, I mean, most people just uh, think about starting a business. They don't really start, and unless they start, they don't know the struggles, they don't know the challenges, and they don't know how to solve them. So, just start. If you had $100 million uh, to spend on changing one industry in Bangladesh, uh, uh, which you believe is critical for the country's future, and definitely $100 million is not going to solve any major problem, it will just be the starting point, but you have this $100 million, no bureaucracy, no red tapes, you have full uh, you know, 
power to deploy the money the way you want it to be? Which industry would it be and why? Uh, education. Um, and I really think that the Bangladesh sort of lacks is that we are taught what to think and not how to think. So I, you know, you said no bureaucracy, no red tape. I mean, I'd like to try to get like critical thinking and learning logical fallacies into the national curriculum. Right? Just, just hammer on and just tell, just teach people how to think critically. What, what was the most important thing you've learned in your life? Most important thing. Um, action, action, action. This is having a bias to action and is more important than trying to make the best decision. Sometimes we spend too much time on thinking and not much time on doing, but it should be the other way around. Sometimes you can do an action, and even if it's not the best action, it's better than no action at all. Funny question, but uh, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would that be? Um, yeah, chicken steak with <laughs> mush, yeah, with uh, uh, mashed potatoes. Chicken steak with mashed potatoes. Very, very specific. Yeah. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where could it, why would it be? Where would it be? I don't know if I want to live in one place. I'd have to spend, spend some time in New York, actually. I really like that place. It's very nice. So probably over there. Uh, in your opinion, and also from your background working at Pathau, uh, what is the most important personality trait or sort of strength uh, that someone would need to work in in a fast-paced industry or in a in a in a high-growth company? So having a growth mindset definitely helps. Like you know, just you know, someone has to come in and has to learn every day and has to do things every day uh, differently, right? If you uh, like, part of the company has evolved over the last six years and it will continue to evolve. So you cannot be complacent on where you are, right? You have to come in and expect you to grow and change. Now, mentors are very important in life and in, in for many people, mentors, regardless of who they are, have a big impact. Uh, um, who has been your most important professional mentor or mentors? So, good question. I so this is one of my things that I one of the things that I regret the most is that I don't think I've actually had a professional mentor per se. Right? I had to teach myself sort of everything, um, and of course that was difficult. But again, like there was, there was no one in Bangladesh who was solving a problem or build, building the company like this as we have. Right? Uh, so yeah, I do get like a lot of good advice. I mentioned Rahat as well and others. Like, I think advice is very easy. They come, right? But it needs to be said like no one tells me what to do. Right? People tell me, oh, you should do this, you should do that. But ultimately the decision has to be taken by myself. Right. So yeah, I highly recommend everyone to get a mentor if they can. 
I want one. I still want one. So, but yeah, don't really have one. Uh, last question. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? That I was a good person. Generally, really try to do a lot. Still try to do a lot, right? Try to help people. And yeah, maybe just that. If people remember me as a good person who had his heart in the right place, even if I made mistakes, just try it. Okay. And um, where can the listeners find you online if they want to follow you and your trails? So um, I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram. Right? So people can follow me on. Uh, so first of all, they can go to my website, hmilias.com, and all my social links are over there. So you can follow me on twitter.com slash hmilias, and it is underscore, or instagram.com slash uh, HMEDS underscore. So, yeah, very active in those places. Got it. Elias, thank you so much for uh, a wonderful conversation. This is actually a fairly long conversation for me, and at the same time, yeah. something that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, thank you so much for making your time and joining my show. Yeah, thanks. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Beginner's Moonshot is hosted and produced by me, Salman Hussain. This episode was co-curated by Samiha Sharmin and mixed by Rafian Nobi Nahin. If you like this podcast, it will mean a lot if you drop a review, which will help reach more awesome listeners like yourself around the world. If you also have suggestions for future guests, please do share them in the comment section below or write me directly however you would like. And finally, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts for your weekly episodes of Beginner's Moonshot. I'll see you next week.